Welcome to this podcast of the Georgetown Literary Festival, entitled The Burmese Labyrinth. This is a conversation with the author and journalist of the book entitled The Burmese Labyrinth, Carlos Sardinia Galashi, and he was uh, born in Madrid in 1978 and has been covering Myanmar for a long time, uh, in fact, for over 10 years as a freelance journalist and as a researcher. Carlos is based in Bangkok, but has been a regular visitor to Myanmar, covering many of its conflicts during the transition period. His work has been published widely in outlets such as Al Jazeera, The Intercept, The Christian Science Monitor, The South China Morning Post, Time, and The Bangkok Post. Carlos currently works for the Spanish news agency EFE, based in Bangkok. We're really honored to have Carlos in this conversation with us today on this extremely timely uh, issue about the complexity of identity and the history of the construction of that identity and identities in Myanmar, uh, the country also known as uh, Burma. Carlos, I'd like to begin by asking you to share with us what uh, compelled you actually to start writing this book. I mean, you have already had uh, a long history as a journalist, writing shorter pieces of news and uh, reports and analysis on many aspects of, uh, of Myanmar and its history and, and its conflicts, I would say. Um, but what, what really drove you how did you start feeling that you needed to expand that form of writing into uh, something much more substantive? Uh, well, uh, uh, I've, I've been covering the Rohingya issue for uh, eight years now, uh, eight years before I wrote the book. I started in 2012 uh, when the first uh, wave of sectarian violence between Rohingya and Rakhine people happened in, in Arakan State. And during that time, it kind of uh, became, a, became a, a, an obsession uh, to understand the Rohingya issue. Uh, at the beginning, it was kind of, it, it was uh, sheer outrage at uh, what I was witnessing there in Arakan, how these people were treated. But then uh, I started to ask uh, questions because things uh, started to get uh, very, very complicated. And they especially started to uh, become complicated for me when I interviewed uh, Wu Wintin. Wu Wintin was a, a member of the NLD who died in 2014, if I remember correctly. And he was a guy that I respected, that I admired, that I had interviewed in the past, that I, I had visited in the hospital. Uh, on one occasion, and, and we seem to have like a good relation, and, and I really respect it because this is this was a man who had uh, sacrificed a lot uh, for the struggle for human rights and democracy in Burma, and to, up to the point to um, spend 19 years in jail. So in 2012, I interviewed him. I interviewed this guy who was an example of of uh, human rights and democracy for me, and. Then uh, we were uh, we were talking about you know the transition and so on, 
And then we touched on the Rohingya issue, on, on, on the violence in Rakhine. And, and I was appalled when he started to express the most uh, racist idea about the Rohingya, saying that the Rohingya don't belong to Burma, the, 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 the violence and the problem was created by the Rohingya, and proposing as a solution what the Americans did in World War II with the Japanese to put them into concentration camps until the issue was solved. So for me, it was, it was like a shock. It was very puzzling because I respected this guy. I still think uh, he was a very honest and principled man, but at the same time, he was a racist. And it happens a lot in Burma that otherwise good people uh, can hold the most uh, outrageous ideas uh, on this particular issue of the Bohemia. And to understand how good people can hold evil ideas on even, or even support evil actions against a particular group was something that I wanted to investigate. And over the years, I became obsessed with the with the issue of the Rohingya, and well, as you know, I, I traveled several times to Rakhine State. I traveled to Aceh when they were rescued by fishermen there. I traveled to Bangladesh. And at some point around 2017, I decided that I had enough material to write a book. And I was lucky enough that Verso uh, was willing to take it. And basically the book is an attempt to make sense or understand the, tra the tragedy of the Rohingya and the tragedy of Burma at large. And in, in that sense, I wrote it for myself. But in other sense, I wrote it because I saw so many misconceptions. And, you know, there, are there, are, there is certain level of detail that you cannot uh, get into a shorter journalistic piece. So yeah, the book is basically a, an attempt to understand and, and it's for the reader to decide if I've been successful or not. And um, I'd like to hear a little bit more from you about the actual experience of doing this writing. Um, you know, you of course uh, had many years of experience as, as a journalist, but what was the difference in you know, writing something which was um, a lot more in-depth this level of historical research that you've done is tremendous, um, you know, really ranging from centuries um, and in a lot of uh, ethnographic uh, detail as well, many different types of sources, uh, as well as your own, uh, you know, primary interviews. So what did you feel was the main difference and, and the difference in terms of the preparation uh, for the writing as well as the analysis and the writing itself? Well, uh, first of all, I, I have to say that it was uh, a little bit difficult for me uh, to write this book because uh, English is not my uh, mother language. My mother language is Spanish. It's, be it's beautifully written. But yeah, I mean, I, 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 I have uh, experience writing and I used to work as a translator. But the, the, for me, it's not such a different of uh, degree. It's not such a, a qualitative difference, but a quantitative difference. Uh, mm. In a way, I put the same research in this book that I had been doing uh, during my years as a journalist and writing some pieces for like New Mandala, for instance, or New Left Review, in which I went a little bit deep into these uh, historical and anthropological issues. Uh, mm. 
And everything was kind of, how can I say, uh, not premeditated in a way. Like, what's, what's the story? For me, the question is, what, what's the story I want to tell with this book? And what sources I need to make uh, the strongest uh, possible argument and to back up uh, my arguments? And sometimes, as it happens, you, you find something to back up an argument and uh, actually this uh, source contradicts your argument, so you have to change the argument. So uh, what I set up to write at the beginning is not necessarily that, that what I end up writing. But I would say it was everything quite intuitive. I'm not a historian by, 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 by formation. I'm not uh, an anthropologist. But I tried to read as much as I could on the history of Burma, on the history of the Rohingya. And also, I wanted to understand ethnicity as such and how uh, ethnic identities and national identities are formed and constructed and lived. So that, that took me to uh, reading a bit of anthropology, a, a bit of uh, political science. Uh, I, I, I went as far as Mahmoud uh, Mandani, who hasn't really worked on Burma, right? Yes, absolutely. But I, I thought it was pertinent. What, uh, actually, I went to Mahmoud Mandani because of you. And, <laughs> and what he said about, about the different uh, um, ways of governing in Africa by the mm -hmm. British and the French, I, I found it very useful uh, for Burma. Yeah. And one thing I found about uh, uh, Burma studies is that, and I think that's changing, uh, there is uh, very little theoretical framework. Mm. And I wanted to make a, 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 at least a small contribution to that. And yeah, I mean, yeah. everything came up uh, like I have a question how best I could answer it. Now, I, mean, I think that's one of the, the things that's so powerful about your book as well, that there is, um, you know, there's a lot of rich detail in terms of actual events, conversations, you know, the way that you've discovered um, you know, particular uh, and un uncovered particular uh, aspects of this very large um, issue and this, this uh, you know, humanitarian crisis uh, as well, but at the same time, really linking it also to uh, scholarship, uh, you know, deeper questions that have been asked uh, as well. And I think, you know, that's really one of the strengths of this book. But I think that, you know, as you're bringing up this issue of identity, it would be really interesting to get... Um, your views on, you know, how you explain in the book this trajectory or tra trajectories of uh, the history of identity mm -hmm. in in Burma. I mean, there's been obviously enormous shifts that have taken place, and you know, the passage, if you like, from very fluid forms of identity, multiple identities, identities much more based on, uh, you know, one's role in the community or in the larger society, uh, in relationship to uh, to others to something which is extremely rigid mm -hmm. and codified. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, um, as you know, the, the, the Rohingya are basically uh, rejected as part of the Burmese poly, poly, 
body politic because they are regarded as not an indigenous race of Burma. And uh, most of the debate uh, between what we might call pro-Rohingya and anti-Rohingya people, both uh, within and uh, outside Burma, uh, is about whether they are a national race or not. But uh, what I found more, more um, what, what I found more interesting is to uh, put in doubt, to challenge the very conception of national identity and, uh, and, and of national races. Sorry. And how this uh, rigid conception of national races came to being. And, uh, the, pro and the problem is that uh, is th that very same rigidity is like uh, you belong to a national race if you belong to a very specific uh, set of ethnic groups who were supposed to be in Burma. Uh, for a very, very long time. Uh, usually the date is, uh, I mean, the, the date according to the citizenship law is uh, 1823, the year before the, the British started to, to conquer Burma. Mm -hmm. And there are three, th there are two things that, that are, in my view, absurd about this idea of uh, national races. One is that Burma, as we know it today, didn't exist that back then. Not territorially. There was not an, a political entity uh, covering the territory that we now call Burma up until the British arrived. And basically, before the British arrived, the uh, boundaries between different ethnic groups were not always clear. Often it was very confusing, and this, this has been uh, argued by anthropologists like uh, F. K. Lechman, like Edmund Leach in his classic uh, book on the Kachin, uh, by historians like Victor Lieberman, and so on. So before the British arrived, you had we had in Burma uh, different groups, and there was some kind of classification of groups. Uh, according to their language, uh, customs, and uh, you know, culture, uh, which they call and, and they call now lumio. Lumio means basically type of people. Mm. But it was not a political identity. It mm -hmm. didn't have a, a strong political overtone. And actually, mm, people could change their identity. And depending on, on where you live, you would, uh, if you emigrate, if you lived in a so-called Kachin, and use the word Kachin in this context is a little bit of anachronism because Kachin as such is something that emerges kind of later. Mm -hmm, that's right. Um, and you went to live in a Shan village and you learned the language of the Shan and you accepted the political social structure of, of the son of the, of the Shan in that village, you basically became Shan over a generation. Yeah. Now, what happened is that the British arrived and they basically uh, arrived with this idea, with these modern ideas of uh, classification of people, these taxonomies that they wanted to impose on the, on the people. 
and they started to make censuses, they started to uh, classify people, not always consistently, it must be said, but they made a real effort to classify people. And not only they um, classified people, by, but uh, they kind of imposed the, 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 um, the disclassifications on the people. So, right, and inscribed them in law, right? Yeah, I mean, this yeah. is, I think, one of the key, the key issues of what distinguishes something as a political identity. Yeah. And, 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 and the problem was that uh, they also made different, uh, like imposed different uh, forms of governance depending on the area. The central Burma was a direct rule and the right. outlying areas were uh, uh, indirect rule to, through uh, tribal chiefs, uh, as they call them. So... That created that for the first, at the same time, for the first time, Burma was uh, a political unity of some sort, but at the same time was a disaggregated uh, political unity. And at the same time, I, I, I think that uh, uh, the, this colonial encounter that uh, contributed so, to solidify ethnic identities uh, was not merely uh, passively uh, uh, taken by the Burmese themselves, but they kind. I think that they, many of them, realized that uh, this world of uh, nations, this world of uh, ethnic identities, was the um, the gaming town back then. So they started to make uh, demands on the basis of those identities. So as I say, some, some somewhere in the book, uh, this. Uh, Ethnic groups in themselves became ethnic groups for themselves, uh, taking it from Marx when he talks about uh, class in itself and class for itself. Yes. In the sense that they they started to act uh, as such. And when in the. Because they're responding really in that sense to that structure of power, right? I mean, if that becomes the overriding system yeah. of power from, by, through which you can uh, claim. Yeah, you know, rights or entitlements. This is actually how you start organizing one's uh, one's own uh, group, as such. No. Yeah. So so they so they contributed themselves to their self creation yes. as ethnic groups. So when uh, independence arrived, uh, you had all these ethnic groups and all of them with their own demands. And basically, the central government, Bamar dominated, didn't really uh, want to hear these demands. And what happened is that. For on the one side, you have the Bamar imposing a uh, um, worldview uh, in which they were the center of, of Burma, and the other groups uh, trying to uh, assert the, their independence or their autonomy. And that's where uh, that's why you have all these uh, wars going on in Burma for many many years between different ethnic groups. And the problem is the Rohingya didn't fit well into this pattern because the, the, the Rohingya would say that they are an indigenous group of the uh, borderlands between Burma and, and Bengal. And that's what kind. <laughs> but as they stride the border, uh, they don't quite fit as neatly as other groups in the overarching category of uh, indigenous nationality. Yes, and, and moving more into uh, Rakhine, you know, into Arakan, I think it's also really 
important this um, point that you make in the book about the Arakanese self-concept as well. I mean, they've, you know, this idea of Arakan itself as really being a frontier mm-hmm. land in many ways, uh, not just, you know, between, um, you know, what is known as Burma, what was known as Burma, um, and the greater uh, Indian Empire. I mean, of course, Burma under the British was part of the Indian Empire, um, part of the British Empire, which uh, British India. Um, but that, that you know, it's really that frontier also with um, between the Buddhist lands and the Muslim lands. It's that frontier culturally. It's a frontier in so many in so many ways. And I think that you know, understanding that a little bit uh, is really important as well. And the level of detail that you go to. Uh, go into in your book is is also very is also very rich but how did you know why why is it so difficult because the the i mean the rakhine themselves also have a complicated history yeah even within arakan very complicated the the, the thing is that the, the, what we had before in in burma in rakhine was a kind of multi-ethnic state in which uh, the rakhine and the i, I mean the, the buddhists and the muslims uh live more or less together without uh, friction. And the friction started because of these rigid ideas of uh, ethnic identity and belonging to Burma. And uh, the, pro- the, the, the problem with the Rakhine is that they are very close to the, to the Bamar, both linguistically and culturally, mm-hmm. uh, especially because they were invaded by the Bamar in, at the end of the 18th century. But at the same time, they want, they, they are very vociferous in asserting their difference with the, with the Bamar. And at the same time, they want to assert this difference. They are very reluctant to accept uh, that they have much to do with the uh, Bengali part of, uh, of their culture, which, uh, which they cannot reject. So I think there is a there is a, an identity crisis there, and and as there is an identity crisis in general in Burma, and they feel that they are, and they always say that, that they are sandwiched between the big uh, Burmese empire, and that is the Burmese state controlled by the Bamar, and the Muslim on the other side, the, the, the Bengali Muslims on the other side. So they have this uh, uh, idea that they are uh, this small uh, this small country that used to be great, but now is not great because it's attacked from both sides. And that complicates the issue a lot because it makes it, uh, a, a, you know, it's, there are three sides in this conflict, not two. And we are seeing that with the Arakan army now. So yeah, I mean the the, but what I found is that the the Rakhine started to assert the Rakhine identity in the nineteenth century. Mm-hmm. Not so much before. I, I mean, as a nation, and in a way, the the, the Rakhine uh, as a nation is very new. It's, it's uh, the the middle nineteenth century. So, but as you know, every nationalism always reads uh, back in time their own uh, their own identity. So they would claim that they've been uh, Rak- they, they have been Rakhine uh, since I don't know the, the you know 
the very uh, 1,000, 2,000 years ago, or whatever, which is actually more complicated than that. Yeah, well, so Carlos, I mean, do you, do you think that there's a, a way to actually, I mean, you've done it, tried to do this in the book, and I think you've, you've challenged this idea, but, you know, the, I mean, obviously there are conceptualizations and articulations of something around national unity, and this is a very strong, um, a very strong, uh, basically concept, which is used, utilized and mobilized, uh, mm -hmm. Uh, massively in uh, Myanmar, but how is that possible when you have so much fragmentation? I mean, we're just talking mainly here about Rakhine, but of course, you know, every single area in uh, Myanmar has its own levels of complexities and all these layers mm -hmm. um, of the complexity of identity and that, you know, construction and contestation. So, you know, why then and how has this idea of national unity even actually been possible? I think it's, a, it's an imposition of the Bamar. And I think uh, it comes from a, um, a deluded uh, reading of history. The, the, there is this history that, uh, which is official history taught in the schools and, and uh, peddled by the government, uh, that um, all the ethnic groups, the national ethnic groups uh, in Burma lived in unity and harmony before the British arrived. And basically the, the British arrived and destroyed that unity uh, Beat, beat uh, the groups against each other, and 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 also introduce foreign elements that like the so-called Bengalis and so on. And uh, that's basically uh, not true. And, and that's the starting point of every discussion that the Bamar want to uh, want to have uh, about what Burma should be. Instead of that, I think if there is a unity in Burma historically. Is what I uh, in in the book call biosenosis, uh, taking it from mm. the description that the Spanish philosopher Gustavo Bueno makes of Europe. Mm. Can you explain that a bit more? Yeah, biosenosis is when you have an ecosystem basically, and you have different species that interact with each other, and live in certain kind of uh, uh, systemic equilibrium, mm. which is basically based on. Uh, depredation, which hmm. is basically based on a struggle, which is basically based on I, I, I eat uh, you in order to survive, so I need you, and we all the species form the system. So if there ever, if there ever was an unity in Burma, is the unity of a biosynosis, not, a, not some sort of uh, harmony of everybody living together and so on, mm -hmm. but this uh, this territory, if there was unity, is the unity of what we might call a battlefield. The thing is that before the British arrived, the the, the so-called uh, species were different, and with the British, the different uh, the different groups in in this struggle solidified, in, uh, and the struggle became even more violent. And I think that's the only possible way to think of, uh, I mean, not, not the only possible way, but I think that's a very, uh, a more realistic way to see uh, what is of a unity, uh, what there is of a unity in Burma. And if we take this as a starting point, 
and not this uh, uh, fantastic and mythical past of uh, harmony and, and brotherhood, is easier to overcome uh, the many conflicts in which uh, Burma is uh, uh, now. But do you do you actually you actually think that's possible? I mean, honestly, you know, having having uh, lived in Myanmar, having so much engagement in Myanmar, having a lot of obviously you know deep knowledge, and I, I know, I mean, I know you, Carlos. You're not somebody who's automatically the most optimistic of people. You know, do you no, I know, I know. actually foresee? Do you actually foresee a time when there won't be conflict in Myanmar? And, uh, I, I, and I think you know, if we're looking towards the future a little bit here, you know, we are having this conversation literally a week before the next election. <laughs> right. And, you know, what do you think the prospects are for that? And do you, do you actually foresee a time when we might actually be able to see some end to some of these conflicts? I mean, you know, obviously we're talking a lot about Rakhine here <laughs> and the issue of the Rohingya, but I mean, any of these very complicated conflicts that are taking place uh, in Myanmar, do you see any way forward? I don't see it now with the present uh, government, the present, uh, the current uh, power structures. Honestly, I don't see it. What I see is that, uh, I mean, Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, I don't think Aung San Suu Kyi has a solution for anything because she's as Burma centric as the generals and many other people. But what I that's see... Just, she's the daughter of a general, I think we have to remember. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And, but what I, what I see is that uh, is it, it's possible that new generations might emerge that will start to ask uh, different questions about uh, what means to be Burmese uh, and who is entitled to be Burmese and what kind of country do they want. And it's in these future generations that I think uh, our hopes must be placed. But as mm -hmm. but right now, as uh, Burma is uh, organized or disorganized now, uh, I don't see any possibility of that, honestly. Well, that's rather bleak, I must say. I mean, do you think... You know, there are obviously movements within amongst the youth which have been quite innovative as well. Um, but you, do you think perhaps it's just too little to actually address, you know, this this very uh, uh, complex, you know, construction and, and the, the, these really entrenched, uh, rigid walls that have been built? You know, what, what, what we're really talking about is this, this labyrinth, right, as you call it. Yeah, well, do you think it's just too little? I, I, it's not only. I, I, it's not so much that it's too little because I, I, I've seen it. I, I'm seeing some uh, younger activists that are very vocal about denouncing what is being done to the Rohingya, for instance, and uh, demanding peace and so on. Is how uh, the people holding different ideas, the people holding old ideas, are entrenched in power right now. Uh, and I mean uh, both. The, they are also rather old, Carlos, they are also right? Rather they're old. also not going to last forever. Uh, uh, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm talking here about both the military and both the NND, who, mm. and, and, in, and in that sense, Samsung Suchi is not the, uh, it doesn't seem to be the person who is more willing, most willing to listen to other opinions or to give way to a younger generation. Mm. So as long as this old and older generation is in power, they are not going to give up power. 
and they are not going to change their ways. Whatever uh, international pressure comes, uh, I, don't, I don't think they are going to change. But I think uh, with time, well, they might disappear and a new generation with different mm-hmm. ideas may emerge. I, I don't know. With history, you never know what is going to happen. We are That's actually true. seeing these days things in Thailand that uh, would uh, have seemed unthinkable even two years yeah, ago. Exactly, exactly. So and cool. I mean, who knows, there may be some crossover and some inspiration that's taking place amongst these youth as well. Yeah, yeah. But as long as Aung San Suu Kyi is in power and long, as long as the Kathmandu, the Burmese army, uh, has the grip on power that it uh, uh, keeps, I don't think there is any possibility of change. What do you think about the relation between these two, though? Because I think, you know, that that's always a big question. To what extent, um, you know, is the the primary responsibility and even the possibility to create any space for change? How much of it, how much of that is really held by Aung San Suu Kyi and L- NLD? Hmm. Um, you know, while there is still so much power that's being wielded by the Tantmandor. I think the Ansan Suchi at some point made, made an election, made a choice. And this choice meant uh, that uh, this uh, national reconciliation she had been talking about for decades uh, basically meant reconciliation between the pro democracy elite, which is elites, and the military. And that's her main uh, goal. And more or less, she has attained that. I'm sure, evidently, there are frictions between Aung San and the generals, but considering uh, their, their enmity uh, 10 or 15 years ago, you can say that the relations are pretty smooth. And at, at the same time, I think that she is very uh, reluctant to... Uh, engage in, part- in, in participatory politics and in, in engaging the people in the building of uh, this new Burma that is emerging. And it seems that she, ha- she wants to control as much as she can uh, the process of, this process of reconciliation. So, in a way, uh, she is now the biggest obstacle for uh, democratization in Burma. Hmm. And what it has emerged since uh, the beginning of the transition, I think, is that uh, ideologically, uh, she is closer, much closer to the military than we might think before. When it comes to national identity, I think he basically holds the same idea, the same ideas about national belonging, uh, uh, who is entitled to be Burmese, and so on. When it comes to centralization, doesn't seem that she's willing to give up on that. Uh, to because uh, she might talk about a federation, a federal state from time to time, but not really putting putting anything on the table. And when it comes to other kind of social policies, economic policies, and so on, she seems to be a neoliberal, basically, as the generals wanted to be ever since uh, the demise of General General Nguyen. So I don't really see her as an alternative when it comes to Mm. issues. 
and seeds she is so revered and so adored by the population of Laris that it's very difficult to challenge her in Burma. So as long as she's in the pictures, it is very difficult that a real alternative to all these ideas so entrenched in Burma are going to emerge. So do we see a way out of this labyrinth? I don't see it, and honestly, I I, <laughs> I, I really don't see it. And, and well, I, I I don't think it's my I, I don't think it's my task to to, to see it. I, I, as, as I say in the book, I just try to map the labyrinth or make my and in some ways to make some sense of it yourself. Yeah, yeah, but but uh, for starters, the the the, uh, the solution has to come from the barbers themselves. It, it, Absolutely. It, 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 it cannot come from outside. And, and so really, if there is a way out, it's something to be made. Yeah. And to be created. And, uh, and I think it, it, it has to be, uh, if, if, Burma has, if Burma is to get out of its labyrinth, it, uh, it has to do it without preconditions. And that comes the idea of national unity. Unity cannot be the starting point and uh, mm, both the starting point and the goal that everybody, everybody, especially the Bamar, wants to be. Mm. Maybe they have to accept a separation of some territories. I, right. I, I, I don't know. Maybe geopolitically it's more advantageous that that Burma is united, but at the same time you need to uh, you need to give autonomy. So I think if and this is the position of Aung San Suu Kyi and the generals when it comes to the. Uh, to the negotiations with other enemy groups, for instance, is like uh, they have a very rigid uh, uh, set of preconditions. And yes. uh, we are not going anywhere uh, with this kind of rigidity. So I think what, what is needed is basically imagination and to, yes. uh, to go into the unknown somehow. Absolutely, a different kind of... Uh imagination of the, what's possible in terms yeah. of looking at national belonging and a kind of imagining which actually doesn't set preconditions from the very start which actually limit uh, that range of possibilities yeah yeah thank you so much carlos for this extremely rich very complicated quite pessimistic but yeah, extremely important <laughs> elucidation um, your book is ex uh, an extremely timely analysis uh, of this issue, and um, we do really hope that you're going to be writing more. Well, let's see. Uh, it took me eight years to write this one, so... <laughs> was it really eight years? I mean, oh writing it was one year, but, but it is the result oh, of yeah. work of many, many years as a reporter, so I don't know. <laughs> well, in the next ten years, we'll look forward to your next one. Let's see. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much Inshallah. for having me here. It's been a pleasure. It's been such a pleasure, Carlos, as always.